Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 60-something companies and adjunct professor at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. This week, Dave interviews Brad Hargraves, founder of Common, co-founder of General Assembly, venture partner at Mavron, and angel investor. I'm your producer, Kevin Weeks. Remember to subscribe to Venture Studio on iTunes so you never have to miss an episode. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Venture Studio, and you can listen to prior episodes at VentureStudio.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. In today's episode, Brad introduces Common, the first company combining brand, technology, and design in the residential real estate market at scale. Later in the episode, Brad discusses the fundamental friction between consistency and coherence in great branding. Finally, a fun fact. Brad is actually our third consecutive guest who started his career selling weird stuff online. And with that, let's head on up to the Venture Studio office with Dave Lerner and Brad Hargraves. In the office, baby. Thanks so much for doing the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Dave. Uh, well, let's catch up. I mean, you and your co-founders built General Assembly over five years into this global behemoth, uh, a new kind of educational institution. You guys ended up in 14 cities, I think something like 4,000 students at any given time. And now some of those co-founders are onto their new missions and journeys. You started a company called Common. Tell us about yes. it. Yes, well, uh, and thank you, Dave. So Common came from a need that we really saw at General Assembly, which, uh, you know, GA is, is doing tremendously well, and I'm, I'm very excited with where that company is. Um, we've hired a few awesome executives to come in and, uh, you know, run the day-to-day of the business, and uh, my co-founder, Jake, and CEO uh, of GA are still, uh, are still in charge there running it. Um, so one of the biggest needs we saw was, you know, many of our students would move to major cities like New York, San Francisco, DC, LA to take our courses. And most of them would end up in roommate situations, often mediated through Craigslist. And this is a pattern that you see, of course, not just exclusively with our students, but is broadly representative of what a lot of primarily young people do when they're moving to a major city like New York is they go to Craigslist and uh, find a couple random roommates on the internet. And we looked at this process and said there had to be a better way and specifically an opportunity to build and service a type of housing that is really designed for roommates, designed for the way that young people live in major cities today. So we started uh, about nine months ago in earnest working on Common and trying to figure out both the softer side of this business, which is how do you select the right people, how do you build a community, how do you deliver the right services, but also really a challenging financial problem of how do you get inventory and how do you navigate 
these incredibly tight real estate markets to get the type of housing uh, that you need to serve this audience. What would you say, knowing you're an incredibly thoughtful guy, uh, what would you say the mission of the company really is? The mission is really to make living easier. That is specifically living with roommates, living with other people, living in a convenient, flexible, affordable way. Um, you know, housing stock today, you know, even in major cities where you primarily have single people living, um, is still entirely designed for families. You know, even the vocabulary, single family home, multifamily building. And it's not rare to see young people chopping up a unit designed for a single family uh, with like, you know, two people living in the master bedroom and then, you know, people living in the tiny bedrooms for the kids. And uh, it's, it's just silly when you look at it. And, you know, we said that, you know, there, there needs to be a stock of housing and a layer of services that are really designed for the needs of roommates. And by doing this, uh, we can make the experience of moving to a major city with a housing crisis uh, so much better. So this is potentially a new paradigm in urban living. How do you select the people? How do you build this community? Yeah, well, well community is incredibly important here. And we really look for people that are looking to be and seeking to be a part of some sort of community, some sort of group, people who want to know their neighbors. You know, uh, one of the things I, I believe a lot of people, you know, living in Manhattan, you know, a lot of people are sick of is, you know, the, the shiny glass tower where nobody knows each other. And it's, it's kind of one of those uh, Manhattan memes that nobody knows their neighbors. And we're looking for people who want to change that paradigm, looking for people who do want to know their neighbors, who do want to collaborate, who do want to live as part of a community. So a lot of it is, is really is self-selection. That is, we describe the activities. You know, we have a potluck dinner every Sunday night. Um, we have, you know, the members have started a lot of the stuff. We have a book club. Um, the member, members use Slack as their community management tool, which actually has worked, uh, worked tremendously well. Um, I have to believe we're one of the first, like, B2C users of Slack. Um, and, you know, a lot of people, it's, it's also, you know, it's comparably priced to a studio in the neighborhood. So if you're someone who wants to live alone, it's a better economic decision to go get a studio. So I think just the way we've set up the pricing self-selects for a certain group of people as well. And then we do uh, a level of diligence that I would say most landlords don't do, uh, back, you know, criminal background checks, for instance, um, you know, along with the typical verification of income. I've even seen ads for, or, or some kind of blog post about the artist in residence at your mm -hmm. Crown Heights facility. Right. What, well, what I, would that entail? Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we picked someone, we actually worked in partnership with Daybreaker, uh, which is a company started by another one of, uh, General Assembly's co-founders, Matt Brimer. And, you know, they have a lot of incredible artists in their community, many of which struggle to afford housing in, uh, in New York. And we created this program at a new building we have opening uh, just in a couple weeks in January. And um, we picked a, an artist, you know, really, a, a, a Elliot LaRue, really a, a veteran New Yorker as well. And 
part of what he's doing is curating experiences in New York, cultural experiences for the community of common members. You know, keep in mind, right now, 70% of commons members are new to the city. That is, they, you know, they're, they're living here permanently. They're not temporary, but they've never lived in New York before. And so one of the services we try to provide them is getting them into the right things in New York. So they're not, you know, traipsing around like a tourist, uh, but they actually have, you know, the right inns at the right cultural places and they can experience New York like a veteran New Yorker. And I, I hope that's one of the things that having an artist and someone who's deeply connected within New York's cultural institutions will bring. Fascinating. Do you, if I can ask, do you imagine this being in New York first and then do you see this going to other cities? Do you see this being, you know, an international organization at one point? I absolutely do. And we actually, um, just went into contract on our first building outside New York. Um, we're not talking about where it is yet, but um, we're pretty excited for that. And, you know, I do see us going international in time. Um, I would say, you know, for, from a startup's perspective, specifically a startup that has a brick-and-mortar presence, you know, the, the narrative of international is often better than the reality. Uh, that is, it's, it's incredibly challenge, challenging from a management bandwidth standpoint to go international. And, you know, you have to not only deal with setting up the entities and uh, dealing with um, kind of getting uh, the, you know, the regulatory environment yes. in, those, in those places, but in many cases, you know, the, you have to, you know, adapt a lot of the marketing materials. You have to somewhat adapt the product depending on what country you're going into. And for a, you know, cash-strapped startup, um, even a well-funded startup, uh, that's often, you know, a little bit not worth the, uh, not worth right. the effort at right. this stage, Series A or Series B. But let's say three, four years from now. Oh, absolutely. Five years even. You know, you're in a bunch of cities, whether here in the States or, or overseas, you know, what do you think people who are part of the common community will be saying when people ask them, hey, I heard you're living in uh, Crown well, Heights or, or what have you? What, are they, what kind of things are they going to say? Well, when we, when we think about the vision of common, we really want to create the first truly global brand for residential real estate. That is, there's no brand that someone moving from one city to another, someone who's graduating from college in Ohio, says, you know, I'm going to move to a major city, I'm going to move to New York, I'm going to move to San Francisco, and I'm just going to move into X because I trust it, because it'll be a great community, because I know the services will be there, because I know it'll be safe. Mm-hmm. There's no brand that people think about when they're making that huge purchasing de- decision. And if you, if you look at the, the broader trend of, you know, I, would, I, I call them technology and design-enabled products and services, things like Casper, things like General Assembly, companies that are taking, you know, very established, uh, strong unit economics business models and kind of adding a technology and design layer, but perhaps just as importantly, building a brand in those segments. Uh, No one's really done that for residential real estate yet. And I think there's an opportunity to create that brand that has that resonance. And if you can do that, what that also enables is really kind of disintermediating the lease and being able to say that someone can sign one membership agreement with us 
and they live wherever they want. So one thing we're rolling out once we have multiple buildings is uh, the ability to move mm -hmm. from building to building within the common network at 24 hours notice. Wow. So if you want to move from a neighborhood to a neighborhood or eventually from a city to a city, um, as long as there is an open room in a common building, uh, 24 hours notice, you can just pack up and move. I and, love it. I love it. Uh, and these, and these, these are, even now, these are month-to-month -month leases, right? You don't have to commit to these, you know, long-term leases and sign correct. off your, your, your firstborn to be a part of this build, a building. Correct. Everything is month-to-month. -month. Um, we do require a minimum 30-day stay in any building, and we do that to avoid being classified as a hotel. And which is a, a really important uh, legal red line, as, uh, as right. Airbnb now knows. Right, right. Um, okay, so, you know, didn't expect anything less of you building a worldwide brand for your next business. Fantastic. You're a deep thinker on brand building, on culture. About a year ago, you came to my class at Columbia and, you know, to talk about culture and you said, you know, a lot of people think culture is this mushy thing, but I'm going to tell you guys why it's really a concrete thing. And, you know, I could see some eyes rolling in the audience. And then when you were done with us, you know, all the jaws were on the floor and they're still talking about it. So tell us how you think about culture. What is it? What isn't it? Well, sure. So, you know, I am... You're remembering some of those, uh, some of the, some of the things I said, uh, I, I said in your class last year. I mean, culture is is really the aggregation of expectations that people have for the individuals in your company and the behaviors of those individuals. And it's 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 not a fluffy thing at all. I think a lot of people look at culture and say. You know, oh, culture is just kind of one of those things, and maybe it happens, and maybe it doesn't. And it's it's really just about um, kind of setting a you know setting a level of expectations, getting the right people, and reinforcing those. And you know, I I, I referenced I think in in your class um, setting expectations for how someone gets promoted, and inversely how someone gets fired in your organization is incredibly important, and it's a good data point, I would say, for establishing that culture. Um, and insofar as actually my, my co-founder and our CEO at GA, Jake, actually gave a presentation at a team lunch once, which was entitled, How to Get Promoted or How to Get Fired at General Assembly. And, uh, you know, he was brilliant the, the way we framed this and that, you know, they're really the same processes, only in reverse, which is... You get feedback, could be positive, it could be negative. You respond to that feedback in some way. You get more feedback, a kind of path is laid down explicitly for you, one direction or the other, um, and a timeline alongside that. And, you know, it's getting promoted and getting fired, actually, it's the same process, just in different directions. And having the right expectations around that and around those, those elements. I think is is key to establishing the right kind of culture in your organization. Right. I mean, something that really struck me when you spoke last year is you were talking about the work values that yep. the founders put in place at General Assembly. And this mm -hmm. wasn't in the beginning. And you guys kind of learned along the way, like, we really need to think deeply about this stuff. Like, you know, use every part of the buffalo. 
Yep. Start with yes. You know, the first time oh, right. handmade. Yes. Right. I mean, that stuff is terrific. Could you could you elaborate a little on what work values oh. are and how they inform everything else? Absolutely. So another important element of, you know, our building culture at General Assembly was establishing have seven um, key work values. And, you know, those, you know, the, the, the goal with those is that they mirror the culture that exists and they're aspirational while not being bullshit. Because if it's bullshit, people are going to know it's bullshit. So one of the, the, you know, the things that we tried to do were to, to distill the best of what people said in the course of being at Common and distill those into kind of seven key work values. So, you know, one of my favorites is use every part of the buffalo. And that was kind of done very intentionally because, you know, one of the, the, the executives that I really respect um, is Jeff Bezos. And at Amazon, he has a value which is frugality. And I have a lot of respect for frugality, and obviously he's built a great business on top of that. But in, in, in our business, in education, where you're dealing with people's lives and people's careers, sometimes you just need to really spend money on something. Sometimes you don't want to be frugal. So, like, you know, when it comes to getting our students jobs, you know, we're not terribly frugal there. Like, we spend the money that we need to to achieve the right outcome. But when we do spend money... We want to make sure that we're getting the most out of every dollar that we spend so that we are not, you know, spending wastefully. And so use every part of the buffalo. It's a little cheeky, but it actually says what we're intending to say. Um, Another really important one, you know, one of the, the challenges of maintaining an entrepreneurial culture at a startup is, you know, you get bigger, you want people who have experience running uh, larger organizations, sometimes you hire out of the corporate world, and that can be a really positive thing. It, 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 it was very successful for us, but you still want to maintain a culture of scrappiness, and one of the ways you try to do that is to put into place some, some terms, some, some, some mores, of an entrepreneurial culture. So another one of our work values, number four, the first time is handmade. I love that one. That is, and the corollary to that is, but the 10th time better not be. Mm. Um, But the first time, it's it's actually really important that, you know, when you come in, you don't necessarily, when you encounter a new problem, you don't expect that your first solution is going to be the perfect solution. Um, In fact, a lot of times that we needed to track things or we needed to build admin tools, you know, to administer an increasingly complex business, we would build them in Excel. And we would mandate that the business stakeholders would build those tools in Excel first, use them, use them for a few months before we assigned any engineering resources to actually building a real tool. Because by the time we got around to assigning that engineering resource, someone already had a much better understanding of what they really wanted to build. Because if you just start throwing engineers at a problem, you often end up rebuilding something several times and wasting a lot of time on that. Right. So first time is always handmade. Um, 
you know, one one that that really stuck with me was empathy is your secret weapon. Yes. What, what, could you elaborate again on that one for us? <laughs> yeah, totally. So, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, when they when they come to GA and when they, you know, new employees, when they kind of get into our culture, um, one of the things that they often said, especially, you know, in, in, the, in the earlier days was, wow, it's like everyone is very upfront and out there with their emotions here. Hmm. And that's actually a, a part of the culture that we wanted to maintain in the right form. I mean, it's obviously not good to have people, you know, sharing emotions carelessly and everywhere. So this was one of those, you know, work value number six, empathy is your secret weapon, is one of those that was uh, in very carefully designed um, in terms of how we wrote it. That is, uh, you need to deploy empathy in certain places at certain times. Um, and by doing so, it is incredibly powerful to be empathetic, to understand someone else's emotions. Um, you know, it's not something you want to be deploying all over the place. Uh, you know, most times, you know, just having a simple conversation is the best one. But when you're in a difficult situation, being able to pull that out, being able to be empathetic and understand is extraordinarily relevant. I think it gets lost at a lot of uh, larger companies. So many of these values were really intending to solidify what was going on, the magic that was happening at GA at an early stage um, without being too prescriptive, um, without, you know, saying specifically this is what you must do. So, uh, I, and I think one of the challenges of, of, of work values, and I've, I've now, since actually since I gave this pre presentation, I've, I've worked with a couple companies to uh, help them build their work values. And um, just as like a friend, not, not as like a consultant or anything, but, um, you know, one of the trickiest parts is when do you develop work values? Like when do you actually take these and solidify them? When do you put them to paper? And, you know, we haven't done it yet at Common, and that's very intentional because I think if you do it too early, it feels forced. It feels fake. Mm -hmm. They have to be organic. And without that, I think they'll, they're just going to, get sloughed off and live by the sidelines. So, you know, I generally think kind of between 20 and 50 people is probably the right time to write these down. Right. No, absolutely fascinating stuff. Relatedly, you're going to be building a world-class brand, knowing you. And, you know, I see you've got Maveron as one of your investors, well-known brand builders behind Starbucks, Howard Schultz, and many other companies. What are the ingredients of building a great brand and, and what are your early thoughts here as, as you're in the early days of common? Yeah. So one word I, I, I really want to talk about with respect to brand building because it's one we, 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 I would say debate a lot at common is consistency. I, I really think that the kind of two words that are in tension in a brand are consistency and coherence. And they really mean very different things. Consistency is about repeatability and 
it is about um, having a similar experience every time you go to something. Well, coherence actually does not imply similarity at all. It implies uh, some degree of difference, but everything kind of fitting together to serve a greater whole. Um, and at Common, obviously, you know, this is not Starbucks. This is not, uh, you know, McDonald's where we can kind of go into a consistent type of building, have consistent exterior branding, even in some respects have consistent interior branding because you know what? This is not a third space. It's not a restaurant. This Every is going to be different. Every building is different and this is somebody's home and we need to let them design a, a, a big aspect of that. If they want to hang their own art, they should be able to hang their own art. If they want to move in a couple pieces of their own furniture, even though you know we supply a lot of the furniture, they should be able to do that. So, you know, and, and if we go into a city like Los Angeles, <clears throat> the type of housing stock that you have in Los Angeles is wildly different than the type of housing stock you have in New York. Like the whole idea of the brownstone, the like three-family, four-story building just doesn't exist in Los Angeles. It's all single-family homes and then very modern, kind of spread-out multifamily developments. So we really have to, I think, move away as far as far away as possible from the idea of consistency, which is, I think, kind of a first-order value many people look to when they talk about brand and toward coherence. So how do we make everything kind of fit together in a way that when you walk into a common building, you're no, you know you're in a common building mm. while not being able to use a lot of the easy tools such as exterior branding, such as, you know, same material palette, such as a certain typology of like space or building. How do we achieve that without using a lot of the easy tools that, that, that people have? So then you start thinking about, okay, you know, there's going to be a television monitor when you walk in every single building door, what's on that television monitor? And how do we really reflect the common community? But at the same time, how do we give each building a sense of place? Right. Like our first building is in Crown Heights and Crown Heights is a very special neighborhood. And, you know, we want to make sure people know that they're in Crown Heights and not just in some generic building. It's fascinating. It's, it's like, I'm going to imagine it's going to be a combination of culture, of technology, of ambiance, mm -hmm. of incorporating the local atmosphere and vibe into the experience of, of the place itself. And that becomes part of the brand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when you think about the artwork, I mean, you know, we put a lot of artwork in these homes and, and, and we try to achieve at least 20% of the artwork that we have in the homes really identifying specific place. So in our first home about Brooklyn or ideally about Crown Heights. So we have several pieces that are like early photography of Crown Heights, um, a couple portraits of uh, you know, famous Crown Heights politicians. So it's, it's little things like that that give the building a sense of place. And I think that's that as long as we maintain that thesis throughout our buildings, I think we'll give them a sense of coherence. Um, across the, the entire portfolio of Comet. You know, I'm going to call you the craftsman from now on. I mean, everything <laughs> is so deeply thought through. How did you think about the, the mix of investors here? You've got a lot of really 
top-notch investors in, in yeah. your uh, company. Yeah. So, you know, choosing my lead was, was pretty easy. I didn't, you know, I didn't shop at or run a process at all. Jason Stouffer and Mavron were the was first money into General Assembly. So I've worked with him for uh, over four years now, um, developed a great relationship, really enjoyed having him on our board at GA. So, you know, choosing them kind of as, uh, as, as the lead was just a total no-brainer. Um, and then from there really tried to get, you know, a mix of kind of friendlies with tech expertise. So brought on Slow Ventures, uh, Sam Lesson there is a, is, is a close friend of mine, um, Lowercase Capital. Um, and then beyond that, really focused on, so those were really the kind of three on the tech side. And then just focus on real estate after that, because we, we quickly realized, you know, we raised the round very, very early on in our growth and kind of as, as soon as we like started raising, we were like, Oh wow. In order to get buildings, most of our real estate partners at that stage wanted some stake in the operating company. Um, and they were not willing to buy buildings to lease to us unless, uh, we gave them a chunk of the round. So, uh, we pretty quickly and it kind of took me by surprise um, how, like, how quickly it filled up just uh, with real estate money. Right. Amazing. Um, yeah, I so see you've got Mavron and Slow Ventures. You've got Lowercase Capital, right. which is out in L.A. And we, do, uh, we talk about the tech investors, not the real estate people, because I don't think anyone, most people <laughs> no. have heard about the real estate people. Right, right. I don't right, think that would mean a lot to a lot of people. Right, but they're a big part of the equation here. Now, you, you two had a, a, a relationship. I don't know if you still are a venture partner at Maveron, mm-hmm. but I know you're an investor yourself, and you've been in a number of companies here like Slate yeah. and Fluent City and Supply Better. What's your lens as, a, as an investor, given your operational background in chops and yeah. you know, your obsession with culture and brand building? How do you look at things? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I, first of all, I, I, I don't you know, normally classify myself as, as an investor, although I do make some investments. You know, I would say I, I, I kind of look at this and say I, I, don't, I don't have the personal balance sheet to go do you know, 40, 50 angel investments and have the dry powder to, to follow on to the winners, which I really think you need to be able to do over a period of years to, you know, really at least see how good you are at angel investing. So, you know, when I invest, I, I, I really don't take things that kind of come in, uh, you know, where I don't either one kind of know the founder really, really well so like one of my investments I made earlier this year is in a company called Hardbound. Um, it's still pre-launch, but uh, you know that was a guy, Nathan Bashaw, founder and CEO, who I'd worked with very closely at General Assembly. I hired him into GA. Um, you know, he was a really talented entrepreneurial product manager there and uh, end engineer and designer, kind of one of those triple threat types. Right, right. And... Um, incredibly talented, built some great products within GA that got a lot of use. And I just built, had a great relationship with him. And when he decided to leave GA, uh, early 2015 and, you know, um, start his own thing. Uh, I, I obviously wanted to, uh, wanted, wanted to be a part of that as an investor. Um, I would say the other category that I focus on just because, you know, I'm, I'm, 
a little bit more averse to zeros than perhaps an angel investor that has a portfolio of 40 companies is cash flowing businesses. So this is not generally not things that venture investors would would touch, but um, you know, I, yeah, what, I think, what does that entail? I'm not familiar with. Yeah, cash, <laughs> cash flow businesses. What's that? Yeah, totally. So I mean, uh, you know, Fluent City in some ways you could you, you could look at as this. Um, I love Fluent City. You know, incredible fa- um, founder CEO James Rohrbach, who uh, previously started a uh, started a company and sold it to to you. Um, so he knows education well, been a good friend of mine for a number of years. And it's a language school. It's a language school. It's a brick and mortar um, school. And he's really expanded the mission over the past year. Um, started as a language school, you know, good unit economics, um, you know, brick and mortar presence in, in Williamsburg and then some classrooms in Manhattan and in DC. Hmm. And really expanded the mission um, from kind of a language school to building the future of the modern liberal arts. So have broadly cultural and kind of modern liberal arts education. So not, you know, the 19th century liberal arts where they're teaching Latin and Greek, but, you know, think cooking, art, foreign language, wine, food, etc. Um, I think there's a huge need for that kind of cultural education, and uh, he's on the forefront of it. So, And, and, and in, when you invest in a company like Fluent City, they charge tuition, etc. They generate... Mm-hmm. You Correct. Know, you know, revenue. Yes, exactly. And uh, and right. and more importantly, they they generate uh, you know contribution off each location. So you know, even if the company as a whole is investing, and GA works in a very similar way, even if the company as a whole is investing to grow, um, each location you can look at as a cash flow business. Um, so things that have those kind of like fundamental location unit economics, Slate is the same way as well. It's a it's a daily cleaning service. Great cash flow business at the core, you know, raising a little bit of capital to build out their infrastructure and grow. Right. But I see a theme here. Community, valuable services, new kind of cultural or educational institutions, all that is kind of, you know, in in your bailiwick. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also look for companies that are trying to build strong brands. Right, right, right. So how did you get like this, man? You you know, you you grew up in uh Arkansas, rural Arkansas. What what shaped you? Why are you such a craftsman? <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I mean, I guess I just like I'm surrounded by really great people, and you know, I was uh, you know privileged to go to go to Yale, and uh, there I started. You know, met a guy named Matt Reimer, and we started buying um, antique furniture from uh, from Ivy League schools. Started buying card catalogs, started buying desks, buying chairs all this like antique wooden furniture that they were getting rid of and uh, started selling it online. And that kind of got me hooked on starting businesses. And I've, uh, that was a lot of fun. So I don't know. I mean, met some great people through my time, um, you know, gotten, gotten lucky in being on the right side of uh, some major trends, including with GA and, uh, you know, was able to start that with some incredible people. <laughs> I, well, I read, I read this piece that you wrote a few years ago, a moment you had with your dad, when you were like nine or 10 years old. And I, I love that story. T- tell oh, us that story. Yeah. You know, I think about this a lot. I mean, I, I grew up in the middle of nowhere in, uh, in South Arkansas, about 90 miles away from the nearest, you know, grocery store or mall or anything. And um, one of the things my dad did every, uh, every spring is he would go out and plant a couple of trees. So he was in the forestry industry. Um, and, you know, we were at the time talking about maybe moving, maybe, you know, moving into a bigger city, you know, um, but he kept 
planting trees every spring. And at one point, when I think it was like 10 or something, I asked him, you know, why, why do you keep doing this if we're going to move? And, you know, he's looked at me and said, well, until then, there's life. And I actually, funny enough, um, I've used that phrase a couple of times in the last, last couple months when people ask me about building a real estate business in an increasing interest rate environment. Um, you know, I think, look, I, I, I think markets are incredibly hard to time. And I've kind of believed for the past three years that uh, the end is six months out. And, you know, for a while that kind of shaped what I did. And, you know, I made certain decisions believing that the end was six months out. And, you know, I still kind of believe that. But until then, there's life. You know, you've got to, you know, if you want to go start a business, start a business. You can't time the markets. You just have to live your life and you have to do what you do what you want to do and keep pushing forward. And then when something happens, you deal with it. Brad, I wish you the best in this new journey. And uh, you're one of a kind. And let's have you back you. on uh, next year and hear more about where Common is. Okay. Awesome. Dave, thank you so much. You got it, my friend. Be well. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know? 